Hello and welcome to this latest RCSLT podcast. Um, my name is Amit Kulkarni and I'm the research manager here at the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists. And we are going to be speaking about a topic that's very close to my heart. And I think, or rather, I have experienced that's close to the hearts of many members out there. And that is evidence-based practice, uh, or EBP. Uh, I'm here, I'm very happy to say, with Dr. Hazel Rodham, who is a reader in allied health practice at the University of Central Lancashire in Preston, and an invaluable source of knowledge on all things EBP. Uh, welcome, Hazel. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. I've been looking forward to this chat with you about my favourite topic. <laughs> Thanks, Amit. <laughs> glad Annette. that we share that. Yeah. Uh, how are you, anyway? I'm fine. Looking forward to uh, to this conversation. And, uh, yeah, just uh, you know, thinking about why people are still talking about this topic, what it means, and how it's you know people's perceptions have changed over the last twenty years or yeah. so. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good place to start. So, as you say, this model has been around for a little while, but there are still some questions that remain around it. Just, just tell us what is the evidence-based approach to practice. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people who are uh, students at the moment or have recently graduated will have had a lot of this as part of their curriculum. But for, for many people, this, this came when they were already very confident about their clinical practice. And then people started talking about, yes, but you need to be evidence-based. And, and it really came from very uh, appropriate, very relevant drivers for evidence based medicine. So back in the early 90s, people started to talk about concern of the variability in healthcare provision, uh, the lack of standardisation, and where strong evidence existed that people should be delivering healthcare in a certain way, it was found that there was high variability. So there was a big push, a big campaign to try to promote increased use of research evidence Mm -hmm. to standardise and improve quality of care. Um, and that was presented in a quite a simplistic model, so uh, three pillars or three overlapping circles, it's sometimes uh, presented as visually, uh, three components of evidence-based practice being mm-hmm. the research evidence itself, yeah. what's relevant, um, people's own clinical expertise and experience, and then the third pillar, the third element being uh, the preferences or the perceptions or the priorities for the service users themselves. And that again, rather over simplistically, but the model had five steps that people were supposed to identify what's the question, uh, look for relevant evidence, appraise the evidence, so uh, understand and yeah, uh, consider it, it, and then if relevant, apply it into their own practice and then not forgetting which people sometimes do, the fifth and final step was to actually then evaluate that change in practice. Has it made a difference? Was that the right approach? Yeah. So just to clarify (coughs) on that point, so you talked about those three areas to evidence-based practice, and I think the model is saying that actually, of course we need to draw upon the research evidence, and of course we need to draw upon what what the person in front of us is saying that they want from their speech and language therapy intervention, we of equal importance need to consider both of those sets of information through the prism of our clinical expertise to um, identify 
a package of care that's best suited for that particular service user in front of us. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely, because we've got to differentiate between the, the individual person and um, what's uh, the best care for them <coughs> compared to what the evidence is telling us about maybe population health or, or larger groups of people and what's right and what has been effectively used for them. So the the accountability for speech and language therapists, for all of us, is to be able to say that we're up to date with the latest research knowledge in our own field of practice. Uh -huh. But as you say, drawing on our own experience and, and clinical skills and negotiating, discussing with the, the family about what they want and what, what they would like to uh, us to work on together. Yeah, and I think that comes that takes us on to some of the concerns that have been raised around the model, where I know um, to Greenhalgh and others, I think in the, so what we're talking about, five, six years ago, in a, in a paper that they had around the campaign for real evidence-based mm -hmm. medicine, identified some of these types of questions, like for example, uh, could, could an sort of a focus on the evidence lead to mechanical rule following rather than carefully considering the individual in front of you. Um, even in the title itself, does it suggest more of a focus on the research evidence rather than the other parts of the, um, of the model? Could you tell us anything else about those concerns and how a reformulation of the model has addressed some of those concerns? Yeah, so Tricia Greenhouch um, called this a crisis okay. in terms of uh, uh, people's perception of evidence-based healthcare. Um, after 20 years of campaigning, it was recognised that really not a lot was changing. It was still a mantra. People were talking about evidence-based healthcare, but really, in reality, it was always came down to being a bolt-on luxury. If people had time, if they had the skills, if they had confidence to try to follow yeah. Uh, the yeah, the model as we've talked about and there was a, a lot of emphasis or a perceived emphasis it wasn't intended by David Sackett originally on the scientific hierarchy mm -hmm. and that's not always relevant for the complex interventions that we deliver in speech therapy and the complex cases that we work with there was also a lot of emphasis as you've just said on people's activities finding research reading research, applying research in quite um, uh, a formulaic way. And the principle, the ethos of evidence-based practice uh, is much more about ways of thinking. Okay. It's not only about what you do, it's not about um, uh, the research uh, or the science as much as it is about ways of thinking, critically challenging and reflecting on our own practice. Yeah. Is this way, I thought this was going to be the best way to work with these patients, with this service, uh, with this family, but it doesn't seem to be working, so I need to stop and think, what else could I do? Yeah. And so it's about us using our problem-solving skills and our scientific thinking skills. And the two things that, that really, uh, I think, Tricia Greenhalgh was trying to promote in terms of challenging people was to reflect on, is this working, and uh, consider how I could look at this problem differently and where I could find information, but also to be patient-centred. Yeah. Because she was very concerned that the emphasis needed to be on patient-centred care and involving the family themselves in their own care planning. Yeah. 
I think that's absolutely crucial, that kind of patient-centred reformulation of the model. In fact, I remember watching a, um, a thoroughly entertaining video of her, on, I think it's a YouTube clip, where she talks about coming off her bike. I think she was about 50, 55, something like that. And I think she was really quite a, a brilliant athlete in the past. She came off her bike and had a hip injury, and then upon entrance to the hospital was immediately put on a pathway for older people with hip injuries because 55 was mm. the bottom age yeah. at which that pathway starts but actually her particular hip injury was sports related so she didn't need the type of care that maybe someone much older with an age related hip injury needed and I you know woe betide that consultant that yeah. tried to, to take her that way but uh, I mentioned that just because I think the EPP model and, and particularly uh, Trish Greenhouse reformulation really does put the emphasis back on that individual patient in front of you. Absolutely, and I think as speech and language therapists, we're very good uh, at talking to the families that we're working with, um, but there are a lot of constraints. So, uh, what we, we know universally across nursing, midwifery, and uh, health sciences is that everybody reports the same challenges and, and the predominant one is time so time yeah. to spend talking with people and time to spend keeping yourself updated um, so these challenges are universal after time people report uh, lack of skills and mostly lack of confidence and to to be able to to be sure and certain that you have kept yourself up to date that you are aware of all the different possible treatment options uh, different types of therapy approaches and what's the evidence for who, who they could work best with. And the, the key to that is, is not to feel that you're in doing this in isolation, to talk with other colleagues uh, as well as with the, the families that you're working with um, so that you, we're sharing the load, helping each other to keep up to date. So within your teams, within your services and within your professional association. And I think you touched earlier on the, the fact that we, in speech therapy, um, we manage clients with lots of sort of multi-morbidities, with complex mm. conditions. They're not kind of neat, one-dimensional difficulties that fit best with, let's say, RCTs or some forms of research evidence. Do you have any suggestions for how people can manage that type of situation, potentially drawing on related bodies of literature or... Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, that is a, a common defence when having conversations with people about evidence-based practice and how they feel about that, the expectations on them as an individual. Um, and very often people say, well, I work in such a specialist field, there's no point in looking for research evidence because it won't be there. Mm -hmm. And there might, it, it, there might be uh, increasing evidence uh, that they, they're unaware of because we are, we're swamped with new publications all the time. But it's true that uh, in this hierarchy of research quality that um, people were looking at a lot in the early days of people talking about the evidence-based practice model, the rigorous randomised control trials, the, the large group studies, aren't going to be relevant, never will be, for people with highly complex disorders that, that we're working with. Um, so looking at, uh, more broadly, at ex, uh, exploratory uh, research studies, um, people's own reported experiences of 
what's happening to them, whether mm -hmm. it's a, a developmental problem or an acquired problem or an injury, a brain injury or something like that. Understanding the impact on people, thinking about the um, the holistic patient-centred view. So it's not just focusing on the impairment, yeah. but it's about uh, more functional goals and improving people's quality of life. So. We need to be campaigning really to make sure that in terms of increasing the research evidence base for our fields, we're making sure that there's a range of research designs and research evidence which is going to answer the quality of life questions yeah. and the experience uh, for the, the families that we're working with. Yeah. Well certainly I know last year there was a <coughs> nice uh, consultation for um, feedback on the types of evidence that they've been accepting and whether people had any comments about it and certainly the, the um, response that came from the RCSLT was to suggest that a, a broader range of data was considered mm. because that fitted best with the kind of complex conditions that we were. Yeah, in. absolutely. Um, we, we talked a bit about the evidence-based model, what it is, uh, a little bit about the history behind it. Just wondering about why should clinicians be using this? We, I think there is some real um, common sense to taking that approach, but uh, I don't know if you want to touch on that question. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we're all come into the, this profession um, because we want to deliver the, the best care, the, give the best advice that's really gonna, going to help uh, the people who we're working with. And this isn't just something which is unique to us in UK or unique to us in speech and language therapy. These are uh, universal challenges for everyone across healthcare, social care professions. In speech and language therapy, uh, I'm very aware of the, um, the dialogue that's going on internationally about evidence-based practice, and we can learn a lot from each other through joining in those conversations. What are... Uh, I have a lot of conversations, is what I'm thinking, uh, with people who might be full-time in clinical practice, they're not associated with any university after they've graduated, and they, they find it really difficult to access full research papers, so they've searched databases online, they've found some really tantalising uh, titles for papers that they think might help them in their field of practice, but they can only read the abstract. Now, again, as I mentioned before, making connections, having contacts through the professional body, through local and regional groups, and even just in your own workplace, then you'll be able to find out different ways where you can access, um, get someone to, to help you access full papers if you're looking for something in particular. But thinking about our colleagues over, for example, on the, uh, the European mainland, um, they, they also have greater problems than we do in accessing full papers but also they're having to read the papers in a language which isn't their own. We need to appreciate that we uh, have access to English language publications and are able to read them easily. But when you're reading, you need to think about, well, who was the population where this research took place and how much does that reflect in a cultural and linguistic context the people who I'm working with? Um, so I think we need to recognise that we have a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of resources that we can draw on, a lot of things that are, a lot of ways that we can help each other uh, to be able to, to find um, evidence base, to be able to exchange conversations about implementing change in practice. Uh, 
because having the uh, autonomy and the confidence to actually change practice and then review, reflect and evaluate, did that work? Yeah. Is that really uh, the way forward? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a whole cycle of, of doing that and keeping ourselves alert and, and uh, not complacent. Yeah. It's what do they call it? Qual- continuous quality improvement yes. yeah. and that's why we're doing it. So I mean, your question uh, that you've prompted me with and I've waffled a little bit Amit but why should it be important to speech therapists? Why is evidence-based practice important? Yeah. It's for the quality improvement yeah. and that obviously is a big driver in yeah. all our services and the only way we can uh, show that we are delivering quality services is to be very transparent, very accountable for saying why am I working in that way? Yeah. I'm working that way because I know it's the best way to work. I've weighed up the options. Yeah. I'm up to date on what the intervention options or the case management options could be. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about it with colleagues. I've talked about it with the, the family themselves. Yeah. And um, I know that there is you know, really high level evidence that involvement in research leads to um, services that uh, better perform for their service mm-hmm. users. Um, I think there is suggestions within the literature that that taking an evidence-based approach to practice uh, can lead to potentially improvements in patient outcomes, the quality and safety of, of healthcare, uh, increasing clinician satisfaction, that kind of thing. Um, what, what are your thoughts yeah, about those? Well, those are all key performance indicators, especially in the UK for the NHS services. Yeah. Um, and a super piece of work that was published by Annette Boaz and team just a, a few years ago looked at this in a very, very systematic way. Very big piece of work, not easy for everyone to read and digest. Mm-hmm. But taking away the headlines of that piece of work and using them in your own workplace to to support your request for being able to work in a more evidence-based way and have more support for that, that piece of work showed, so this is Annette Boas, they showed that where services in an organisation have that support to be more engaged with the research evidence base, it improves evidence-based processes of care and the patient's reported experience of care. Really, really important factors. There is some evidence that came out of that and subsequently to show that where people are engaged in evidence-based processes of care, it will improve patient outcomes, so clinical measures. But we need to be very cautious about reading papers that claim that because methodologically it's so complex to be able to, to say that the actions of one person will be able to influence where there's many other factors that are going to potentially influence patient outcomes. Um, But we're we're looking for for that type of evidence base increasingly to show what should the workplace culture look like that's going to facilitate and support people to be more evidence based in the way they work. Because we do need support. It's um, going back to where we started this conversation, David Sackett's model, which was presented in a simplistic way for a reason, mm-hmm. but it shone the spotlight on the individual, what every individual should do, and didn't sufficiently recognise that we all work in a context yeah. and we've got limited autonomy to change the way we work. Yeah. Um, but also, there are many other competing aspects, uh, influences on, on the patient care. So. This is the next step we're looking forward to 
um, measures that are going to show us about the, the organisational context which are going to improve standards of care and uh, improve uh, quality of care for patients wherever they happen to be. Yeah, no I agree that's absolutely central to this isn't it, like the culture mm. in the place that you're working in which could make or break your evidence-based approach to practice. Um, we are unfortunately running out of time so I just wanted to ask, do, do you have any final comments about evidence-based practice model and why speech therapists should be using it, any further key resources, anything like that? Well, I think we've touched on why, uh, well more than touched on <laughs> we've both expounded on why this is central it doesn't matter what what area of, of speech therapy you're working in uh, we're all here because we want to improve quality the the whole conversation about the, the challenges uh, of evidence-based practice to people's uh, skills for finding research publications reading them in with confidently understanding the research design um, all those sorts of things it were the driver for me to set up the research support network which is completely on, uh, free, online, open to anybody and the, the purpose for that is to try to share updates about research publications about professional ways of working so we do cover things which are clinical specific as well but it's to give people a little bit of ease of access to research publications, uh, a little bit of a, a guided digest of what the research means uh, and then an opportunity community to be able to discuss that with a big emphasis not on the uh, research design but on how people implement these changes yeah. into their work. And so that would be uh, what I think is, is very helpful um, advice is to talk to your colleagues and if uh, you, by joining a wider network, a wider community, that might help as well. Uh, and fortunately, we've got many opportunities for that sort of thing, yeah. including all the fabulous support from RCSLT. Yes, well, I might just refer, in fact, mm. then, um, to some of the resources we have to uh, guide people to learn more about the EBP model, and, and I think really importantly as well to point people towards resources that can help across all three areas of the, of the EBP model. So really I think for so many of our resources the website is the central place and within the research section on the EBP web pages you'll find things like um, the webinar that we previously did about EBP, there is links to an e-learning package that can help you delve a bit deeper into the model. Um, in terms of resources, um, so many of the resources are directly pointed to through the web pages but we also have a training package on there which we have been delivering at, at hubs and at some services which lasts a couple of hours and it just highlights some key resources that exist across different parts of the model either to access the research evidence or to appraise it potentially to access patient and, and service user preferences or to help you reflect upon your clinical expertise and continue to develop that so please do go to the EBP web pages uh, and we'll put a link um, on, the, on the podcast site so that's very easy for people to do so. Um, I'm just going to wrap up, I think, Hazel. Mm -hmm, yeah. I, from, from my point of view, <coughs> I, I'm yet to meet a speech therapist who doesn't really care about the mm. service that they provide for people with communication and swallowing needs. And I think the accepted best practice approach that we have at the moment is the 
evidence-based model of practice. So I think that in itself is enough to suggest that we should be doing that. Um, I'm hoping this podcast has allowed people to reflect a bit further on the EBP model, maybe to prompt some further reflections as to how best to take their service forward. Are there any last thoughts from you? I, I think you're quite right. That there's lots of um, uh, innovative practice, lots of enthusiasm and lots of, of stamina, lots of energy out there in speech and language therapy services and individuals. And it's, it's really great to connect with people in whatever way you can, virtually or face-to-face, through the hubs, through the sends, in your own clinical area of work talk to each other if you've found a piece of uh, research a publication that you think is really helpful to you tell other people about it share it and then that way we'll help each other Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Hazel, thank you so much I think we've done relatively well I'm sure we could have talked <laughs> uh, for several days oh, we could. This, yes it's hard to stop we uh, <laughs> but thank you always enjoy chatting with you Emmett yes me too thank you Hazel